At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Please be advised that this episode discusses stalking, emotional abuse, and sexual assault. Hi, Just Watch Me listeners. My name is Grace. And I'm Linnea. And we are the Minute Women Podcast, a podcast dedicated to diving into the bigger stories behind those iconic Canadian Heritage Minutes. Along the way, we uncovered the funny, weird, and downright terrifying stories left out of Canada's national history. Like, did you know that James Naismith learned to shoot basketballs by throwing rocks at kids? Or that cows would regularly fall through the roofs of prairie sod houses? Or that Sir Sanford Fleming wanted to call standard time cosmic time. And we haven't even talked about all the murder yet. So if this sounds like your kind of podcast, go give Minute Women a listen. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and all other major platforms. You can also find all of our episodes and social media links on our website, minutewomenpodcast.ca. We hope that you'll join us on our wacky and wonderful podcast. Bye! A playlist original. Just watch me. The medium is the message. Proof is approved. What kind of proof? It's approved. It has no core identity. Smashed potatoes are no gravy. You know what I'm saying? Speaking uh, moistly on them. Hello and welcome to Just Watch Me. I'm Kate. And I'm Liv. And today on the podcast, we have Julie Lalonde, who is an award-winning women's rights advocate and educator. Julie has been working to end sexual violence for almost two decades. Her new book, Resilience is Futile, The Life and Death and Life of Julie S. Lalonde, won the 2020 Ontario Speakers Award and was named one of the best books of the year by CBC Books and The Hill Times. Hi, Julie. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for uh, inviting me. So um, to start... Can you tell us a little bit, a bit more about the work that you do? Yeah, so I um, work to try to prevent violence against women, mostly in a Canadian context, although I've done some work internationally. Um, but I'm really passionate about prevention work, about community care, um, and things like bystander intervention. So really putting tools in the hands of everyday folks to be able to hopefully prevent violence from happening. Um, but when it does happen, be able to respond appropriately. Um, prior to the pandemic, I was on the road about 200 days a year. So 
I um, really crisscross the country going to like little small communities across the country, talking to everybody from students in junior high to folks on the hill, lots of campuses, lots of workplaces, elders, um, a real variety of folks, which um, frankly I miss doing, um, but have since transitioned to doing uh, over Zoom. Great. Um, this book obviously is intensely personal. Um, how did you know that you were ready to write and publish this? So I was approached actually to write the book, which is an incredible privilege, but I really put it off for a number of months because I didn't know if I wanted to write the book and I didn't know if it was, there was a reason to write the book. I think we have seen um, quite a bit of survivor stories, a lot of conversations about different things. And I thought as a privileged white woman, like, do we need another story out into the world? And I'm grateful that um, when I finally found a publisher that I really clicked with, that they really understood my vision, which was to make it quite like small p political. And so I think when I knew that I was able to bring the analysis that I wanted to bring to this issue and that I was really going to be supported by the publisher and being, you know, angry and feminist and all of those things, then it felt like, okay, this is my, this is, this is it. Like, this is a way in which I can tell my story where I have control and I can make it more than just like, here's another survivor, like trauma porn. And like, you know, there's a real interest in true crime. And a lot of people are interested in my story because of that kind of true crime angle. And that just feels gross to me. So I, it took a lot of convincing uh, for me to do it. But eventually um, I came to a place where I thought, okay, I can take control of my story. And that's um, a real privilege. It's interesting to hear you say that because I remember um, the first time I heard you uh, talk about your story. I mean, I, I'm someone who I, I mean, I considered myself to be quite well educated on these types of issues. And this was something that I hadn't heard much about at all. Um, and so it's funny to me to hear you say that you weren't sure if you even wanted to put it into this space, because I feel like these types of stories are so underrepresented and, and we have so like little knowledge of this, especially in Canada. Um, so I, I think your story is incredible and, and it's so brave of you to put it out there because I'm sure, I'm sure that it wasn't easy. And I'm sure that the backlash you have continued to have backlash, <laughs> not only because of what you do, but, uh, because of this book. So to get into it, um, tell the listeners who, who was Xavier? Xavier was my best friend, all through high school and when I was in high school I was dating someone else who was and continues to be quite lovely and I really just thought that Xavier was my bestie we did everything together we were super close and people would sometimes joke that he had a crush on me and I was always adamant that no 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 we're just friends um but then when I broke up with my boyfriend to move away to university Xavier declared his undying love to me and I thought okay we could just date for a little bit and we ended up dating for two years um, pretty quickly things went sideways. And so it took me a few tries to leave him, but I eventually did. And unfortunately for me and my family, he went on to stalk me for over a decade. Um, and so he really played different roles in my life at different times. Um, but ultimately, yeah, it was my stalker for uh, close to 11 years. Can you talk about when the relationship took a turn and, and that's me assuming that it, it did take a turn to the abusive at all or is that a misconception about abusive relationships yeah that's a great question I mean I can say that 
you know, for folks who don't know, the neurobiology of trauma is very real. And so we have documented, you know, peer-reviewed evidence that trauma impacts memory. And so in my mind, looking back on it, I thought we were together for such a long time before things went sideways. But in writing the book, I pulled out all my old journals and my old writings. And it was clear that we were together for mere months before he started to act really controlling, really jealous, really possessive. And even though I was a women's studies student at Carleton University, I, you know, did activist, feminist activist work. I was fighting for abortion rights and sexual assault survivors. I really didn't clue in as to what was going on with me. And I think I still had that very cliched understanding that abusive relationships is, you know, when someone calls you ugly and pushes you down the stairs. And so in my case, he didn't use physical violence. He used a lot of mental um, you know, belittling, but in these very, like my work was stupid and my dreams were stupid. So like these things that again, I could kind of justify as like, well, he still thinks I'm pretty and he still thinks I'm smart, but just this, you know, like a, just a lot of rationalization um, for quite a long time. And so, um, yeah, it definitely was a boiling frog experience of waking up one day and thinking, who have I become? And I really felt like a shadow of my former self. I had so little self-esteem. I felt defensive with everything that I said because I was so used to being attacked. Um, and so ironically, the only, what pushed me to leave him is because I found out he was cheating on me. And for some reason, that was like a line that felt too far, you know? And I felt like, oh, people will understand if I leave him because he cheated on me. It's almost like I needed permission to go with my gut feeling. Um, but it was looking back that I was like, oh man, like there were so many signs that I just really chose to ignore. And it really was a choice. Like I knew I just didn't want to look at it. And of course, when you left the relationship, you thought that that was the end, but of course it wasn't. Uh, so can you talk to us a little bit about what happened after the relationship and, and the kind of behavior, some of this very specific, um, stalking behaviors that, um, that happened? So I left Xavier on a weekend when he was away out of town. And um, I left a note telling him, you know, it's obviously this is shocking. Like we live together, you come home from a long weekend and half your apartment is gone. And so is your woman that feels a bit stressful. <laughs> um, so I was very clear in saying, like, I get this is shocking, but it's what I need to do. Give me a couple of days. I'll be in touch with you. And like literally the second he got in within 10 minutes, he was in his car driving around the city, banging on doors, demanding to know where I was, saying someone knows where she is, where is she? So, I mean, things escalated incredibly quickly. Um, and his behavior over the course of the, you know, close to 11 years really varied uh, from traditional stalking. So he followed me everywhere I went. He, I called him from a payphone. He ended up tracing what payphone I called him from. He left notes on my car. He left notes at my workplace. He sent me flowers and love poems and threatening notes. He would call incessantly. I ended up moving on several occasions. At one point, he actually moved into the apartment behind my house to watch me sleep. Like just really, really like stereotypical, frankly, like Hollywood type stalking behavior, um, social media. He hacked into my bank accounts. Um, really just tried to be in my periphery as much as humanly possible. And it waxed and waned at certain points, but it never stopped uh, for the duration of the, you know, close to 11 years. Something that really hit close to home is that you, uh, like a good women's studies student, you draw on the wisdom of 
um, Michel Foucault and you talk about um, like that feeling of, of being surveilled. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what that felt like um, and maybe some of the self-policing that goes on as well? Yes, I would love to nerd out about <laughs> Michel Foucault with you. <laughs> so um, I come, what's important for us to know about me and the way I approach my work is I come from very blue collar roots. I'm the first person in my family to go to university. Um, so I never really had a lot of patience for my theory classes because I was very much about like, let's get to work. But I really had this like very almost like cliched life wall moment in a theory class. And I think it was my third year undergrad where we learned about Michel Foucault and in particular the Panopticon, which is a real place, but it's also like a theory around it's the idea of building a prison cell or a prison where there's a tower in the middle that sheds incredibly bright light into the rooms of all of the cells so the people in the cells can't see out um, and so they don't know when they are being watched and then eventually you know, actually don't even need anyone in the tower because the people start monitoring themselves and start policing themselves just expecting that they're constantly being watched and that is the most um, like poignant metaphor for being stalked it is that you assume you're always being watched because many cases you are, but then you end up sort of self-censoring, um, assuming every, like everything that I said, everything that I wrote down, everything I put on the internet, everything I said um, in public or in a private conversation, I just assumed that he would overhear. And so you end up censoring yourself, trying to protect yourself from the inevitable. Um, and then there were periods of times when I wouldn't hear from him and people would think, oh my God, girl, it's, it's good now, you're good, he's gone. But instead it actually made me more anxious because I was like, what is he plotting? What is he doing? Um, and it's a very, uh, it's a, such a bizarre form of trauma bond that goes beyond just trauma bond. It's like a very weird, almost like psychic connection you have with this person where you're just constantly thinking about them, even though you hate the very thought of them, but you're just consciously always aware that they could be around the corner. Um, and people don't get that, like, unless they've experienced it, it's really hard to, to wrap your head around. I'm curious, um, as you kind of alluded to in your answer, uh, that you, you, your friends and family had a really tough time understanding what you were going through and potentially supporting you or, or helping you in, in a way that was, was meaningful and, and useful to you. So I, I wonder if you have any advice for people who, um, who think that their, their loved one or their friend might be going through a similar thing of, of how to best support you during that period? Yeah, that's such a great question because I think that is what's missing from so many places. So I would say the kind of two biggest things is uh, I see, I feel. So I teach that to folks um, of all ages and in, particularly in the context of if you're concerned that someone is in a violent situation, but even you know a mental health struggle, it's a really great way to communicate to someone that you are concerned, but you're not bringing judgment or impatience. You're just bringing um, concern. So you start with "I see." So you know, I notice how your demeanor changes when he's around. I feel really heartbroken for you because I know you're a very outgoing, vivacious person, and I feel like it's really dimmed your light, and that makes me really sad. And as your friend, I just really want you to know that, that that's what I'm observing. And it's a really great way to open the door to a conversation where the person realizes that you're coming from a place of concern and not that you're looking down on them. And I would say that's the biggest 
Um, the second piece, which is the biggest mistake that was made by my own family, I would say in particular, my dad, who to give him credit, uh, was very open to me being blunt in the book about the things that my family did wrong. And he really wanted folks to learn from that, which I thought was really quite beautiful and a real gift. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, there's often this, like my father would say to me, like, what's wrong with you? Like, I didn't raise you to tolerate this. Like, I didn't raise you to let, you know, to let somebody talk to you like that. Um, and it was, it came out as impatience. It came out as disappointment. Um, and so what would happen is I would just be, get better at covering it up. And I would make sure that, you know, we weren't hanging, that Xavier wasn't around if my dad was around, because then he would, like, I just got better at covering it up because I felt like such a disappointment. And I think it's born from, like, I really, to me, the metaphor of that is when you watch like old school black and white movies and a woman is in quote unquote hysterics and someone kind of slaps her in the face to kind of knock her out of it. Like, they're just like, get out of it. You know, like that kind of idea. And I think it's, that's really the kind of vibe of that is like, they're just, she's not thinking straight. I mean, she's just being hysterical. She's not being reasonable. Someone has to just like slap some sense into her. But what the impact of that is, is incredible blame, incredible judgment, disappointment, um, and you're one more person telling me that I'm being stupid, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I'm like, I thought the problem was that he calls me stupid and now you're doing it too. Right. So, um, I think that's a really common mistake. And I know when I've talked about that and shared that with other parents and other educators, I've had many of them, notably men approach me afterwards and say, I totally said that I have absolutely said that. Um, and I thought it was the wake up call they needed, but now I see that actually that flies in the face of what I'm trying to accomplish. So I would say avoiding that like, and doing it with, I see, I feel is really the, the, the kindest, most effective way of um, starting a conversation with someone, you know, if they, if they're disclosing to you, then that's great. They've already opened the door and they're clearly sharing with you. But what I hear so often is people saying I'm concerned and it's kind of this like open secret and it's an elephant in the room every time we hang out, but I don't know how to approach it because it feels so awkward. So I see, I feel is, is a really great entry point. I think the, the piece about like judgment and disappointment from family members when they say like, you know, like, like your father, I think it so clearly feeds into the, the self, like the attacks on the self-esteem too, without meaning to, which is exactly what the abuser is working on. Um, cool. so that's really, I think that's really important. So, so thank you for that. Um, I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your attempts to use a legal system in your situation. Can you talk about when you decided to go to the police and how that went? Yeah. So I, that's another example of how memory was, it's just, such, it's fascinating. I'm fascinated, like at a professional level and a personal level, I'm fascinated by the neurobiology of trauma. When you consider how many of us are walking around with trauma and what it does to you. I was convinced when I started writing my book that Xavier had been stalking me for weeks, if not months, when I finally decided to call police. Um, and it was dazed. Like it really was that awful from the jump. Um, and so when he was driving around, uh, going from place to place after a few days of that, I thought, you know, I got to call him and just tell him to calm down. So that's when I called him from a payphone. He ended up leaving a note on my car detailing specifically which payphone I had called him from, which is an incredibly difficult thing to do. I've had police confirm that to me since, um, but especially in, you know, 2005 when this happened, I mean, technology was so limited then. So that was kind of my indication of like, okay, this person wrote a note where they detailed every single place I have been and they're all correct. These are not wild guesses. These are all absolutely correct. 
and he signed it with his name. So like, okay, I'm going to call the police. This is clearly something I need to do. Uh, and immediately the police were dismissive. And, you know, the operator asked me, well, did you break up with him or did he break up with you? And I said, well, I left him again. This is what we tell women to do. Um, and the operator said, oh, he's just heartbroken. It's just been a couple of days. Just give him some time to cool down. And that was really the vibe throughout my entire experience with police. And it's why I, I have so many frustrations around things like hashtag believe survivors, because in my case, the police believe me. They absolutely believed that Xavier was stalking me. They just didn't see it as threatening. They just didn't think it was that big of a deal. He was 19. He didn't have a criminal record. He was white. He was good looking. He was incredibly charming. He was physically smaller than me. So I'm quite tall and he was quite short. Um, the, all of those kind of factors played into the fact that I seem to be doing fine for someone who claimed to be traumatized. And yeah, he's like kind of an annoying pipsqueak, but he's annoying. He's harmless. And that was absolutely unequivocally the vibe uh, throughout my entire experience with police. So I'm actually, again, because memory is such a finicky thing, I'm in the process right now of actually trying, it's a very lengthy process. I'm trying to get access to my police records to see um, how they closed my file, for example, what their perspective was on what happened. Um, but I tried to access the peace bond process, which many people are not familiar with. And it's sort of like a, a restraining order but you can get it on your own by going to a courthouse. You don't need police involvement. And I was woefully unprepared for that experience because I had no idea what the heck I was doing. I mean, I'd never even gotten a speeding ticket. Like I'd never been sent to detention. Like I was just such a rule follower. I didn't know what the heck was going on. And yeah, the peace bond process fell apart. It was the first time he threatened to kill me. Uh, and so I just acquiesced because the police weren't taking it seriously. And I did what a lot of survivors think, especially survivors of intimate partner violence and survivors of childhood abuse, where you think I can reason with him. I'm the only person that can reason with him. So I just got to find a way to reason with him. And I'm not going to get other people involved because every time the cops show up, they don't take it seriously. But Xavier does. And my life becomes worse. And I talk about that really openly, as difficult as it is, because I am a privileged white woman who was a women's studies student who was living in dire poverty, but faked it really well. Like I had a lot, I was a perfect victim in so many ways and I was not helped. And so I do not know who we claim that the criminal justice system is helping um, because I mean, I had letters signed by his name. I mean, it was like the most obvious case of stalking most of the legal experts I've worked with have ever seen um, and yet nothing was done. And so I think that speaks to how flawed the system really is. And I just add to it and we're not criminal lawyers but what what frustrated me um i think from a legal perspective too was when you talk about um the police telling you to cool off it's been 72 hours like um whether or not the police think that like this person is actually um at risk of committing further crimes um against a victim the behavior he's already done is already criminal it is already probably criminal harassment like, yeah, that's the, it doesn't have to be, and we'll, I, I want to talk with this, um, with you at this later that we think of stalking as a prelude to other crimes, um, but stalking itself, like he's already exhibited criminal behavior at that point. So that to me is just like, that is unforgivable. Like he's already committed a crime. It doesn't matter whether or not they think he's going to cool off or he's not a risk, which obviously the three of us know what, what happens later, but um, it's just so infuriating to hear 
like these situations dismissed. Um, you mentioned the peace bond process as well. Can you talk about um, and you talk about how, how it did, didn't serve you uh, with all your privilege. Can you talk about how the peace bond process poses some sp like specific challenges to applicants in terms of um, like the procedural elements of it? Yeah, absolutely. So I only knew about the peace bond process because of another um, police operator who this time had my best interests at heart. So I was told by the police every time he does something, call and add it to your file. And I think one day I called four or five times in one day. And finally the operator said, didn't you call four times today already? And I thought, oh my God, I'm in trouble. And I said, yes, yes, but I was told to. And she said, no, absolutely. You're doing the right thing. But like, why has no one, why have you not had a peace? Like, why haven't you gotten a peace bond? And I said, I don't, that is the first time I've ever heard those words. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. So she explained to me that a peace bond is something that anyone can apply for at their courthouse and that you explain why it is that this person needs to have conditions put on them and those conditions are in place for a year and in my case I very clearly wanted a no contact order I wanted him to not physically come near me not communicate with me at any point um I had you know all of my evidence so I went and I filled out the application which was already a very intimidating process I mean I literally had to put my hand on a bible and swear I was telling the truth and I thought oh my gosh this is you know I had no experience with the legal system whatsoever what I was not told was that he would have 10 days notice to appear and the um, logic behind that is he hasn't been charged with any crimes this is not about him being charged with the crime and he has the right to prepare and he has the right to you know ensure that he can make the appearance etc so I was not told of that. I also wasn't told that he was going to be served at work, um, which obviously was a trigger for him because it was humiliating. And so that increased his rage. And for 10 days, there were no conditions on him contacting me. So for 10 days, he absolutely tried every single tactic in the book from pleading to being lovey and saying, you know, I love you. How could you do this to me? To threatening and saying, you're going to ruin my life you're such a dramatic bitch, like just going on and on and on. And I wavered and because I felt like this was going to really get worse and I was not supported in that wavering. So my family was very angry with me and said, uh, you know, he's, you have to do this, but you know, they were nine hours away and I had no one and I felt so lost and confused. And I thought, okay, so the day of the, and it wasn't a trial, but our court appearance came and he showed up at my house and said, you're going to get in the car and you're going to go and you're going to tell them no, or you're not coming home. And so I went to court and you show up and you sit there and you wait until your name is called and they just go through people like a roll call. And I remember sitting there thinking, this is the most humiliating experience of my life. And I mean, I remember so viscerally, like I had my I can't remember if it was Suzy Shear or Smart Set, but like, you know, the poor millennials like power suit situation. I had like my best clothes on because I was told, you know, this is going to court. This is a respectful thing. And I remember looking over at him and he did manual labor. So his hands were filthy. He was wearing, do you remember? Like we used to call them windbreakers where I'm from, but like slush pants, you know what yeah. I mean? But they're like tearaway pants. Like the dude <laughs> yeah. with Adidas slides. Okay. And I just remember thinking, 
there's a term in French called like brush à foin, which is when someone's just like looking haywire and like a hot mess express. Like I just remember looking over and being like, this is so embarrassing. Like you look like riffraff and I'm standing here. Um, and then they call our name up. And again, no one told me you stand right beside this person. There's no physical barrier between you and them. And there's a panel of justices and, you know, court folks who are taking notes and what have you. And they called out our names. And then the, uh, the, one of the justices said, you're, you're Julie alone. And I said, yes. And they, and then he made a joke because he said, oh, you're so well-dressed. I thought you were his lawyer. Um, and I was so nervous. I mean, I, I like was going to throw up. And so then they asked me, you know, how do you plead or whatever the case is? And I said, I'm here to revoke my request. And almost immediately the tone, the jovial tone turned to absolute rage. And I was scolded in front of a packed courtroom full of people and told, obviously you're not afraid of him. You came here with him. This is a waste of the court's time. You're the reason why women get abused because, um, you know, you're wasting the system's time. Um, you're dismissed and basically shame on you and then Xavier drove me to work and went on with his life and he didn't have to say anything but his full name and I remember vividly thinking why am I made to feel like I did something wrong now of course in retrospect knowing what I know now and the work that I do I'm like that is a not trauma-informed legal system there's not a single colleague of mine who would deduce that a woman showing up with her abuser is proof that he's not an abuser. <laughs> um, I mean, it's so clear that there's an obvious intimidation. It's very easy to coerce people in a circumstance like that. Um, and so then when police followed up with me a few weeks later, again, I think it was a few weeks, um, waiting to get that confirmation, but uh, the officer was so upset with me and said, in my experience of working with men like this, they will not stop until he kills you. And I vividly remember, like I remember word for word, and I just remember thinking, well, dude, if that was the case, then where the hell have you been? And why am I doing this by myself? Um, and so then shortly after they called again, when Xavier was in my house, again, now I know they didn't follow protocol. They didn't ask me yes or no questions and whether or not it was safe enough for me to speak. Um, so sure enough, I said, everything was fine and everything was good. And he said, okay, we're going to close your file. And I said, yeah, that sounds good with Xavier standing beside me. And then police never contacted me again and closed my file. And that was again, based on my memory, I, maybe beginning and, you know, beginning of calling 911 to my file being closed was maybe six months. Um, and it went on for 10 years. So, um, I mean, there was no way I was going to call the police again. There was no way. There was just like, it just didn't make any sense. Like every time I called them, they made it like they actively made it worse. The first time he said he was going to kill me was when the police were involved. Like, um, so I had every reason to believe that I was taking the safer path, which is interesting now because I get a lot of questions about, you know, if you could do anything differently. And I was like, I don't know that if I did anything differently, I would still be alive. <laughs> um, and that's, What's so interesting to me, I think, is that I survived something that is statistically impossible. And yet I still get questions about, well, if you had to go back in time, I was like, of course I would do a thousand things differently. But um, I only knew so much, you know? It's, it's truly chilling. Um, and, you know, you talk about how you got lucky, but of course there was uh, 
the case of the women in Ren- Renford County who did not get um, lucky at all and who were killed by their partner. And that was particular, such a chilling moment in the book because I think it, it really sets in the reality of how dangerous the situation that you were in was and how dangerous this situation can be for so many others. So um, I'm curious just if we can take a moment to talk more generally about the scope of stalking in Canada. Yeah, so I mean, I really want to echo what Katie said earlier about how the biggest problem with how we talk about stalking is we don't recognize it as a form of of violence in and of itself. Um, From a legal standpoint, we know that criminal harassment charges, which criminal harassment is the legal term for stalking in Canada. We know that criminal harassment charges, when they are laid, they're often laid in tandem with other things. Um, And, you know, the inside baseball piece is because we know police are waiting for something else that they can use um, as an additional charge, whether it's assault, arson, um, you know, uttering threats, whatever the case may be. And so right from the jump, we're not recognizing that stalking is a form of intimate terrorism that is, I mean, it forever changes who you are. uh, And that piece is really missed. But then, yeah, additionally, people don't understand that stalking is absolutely a precursor to homicide. Um, We know that women who are in situations of violence where someone violates any boundary, that that person will violate all of your boundaries. And if that person didn't respect your boundaries when they quote unquote had you, you can just imagine they're not going to respect them when you decide to leave. Um, and so those, that piece, I mean, it's 2021, it's post Gomeshi, it's post Me Too, it's post Party Picnic, like we've had so many examples of misogyny and we still fall on this, if he's awful, just leave him. Um, so we don't talk openly about how, you know, like myself, everything that I went through with him paled in comparison to everything I endured after I left him. Um, and so, and I wasn't prepared because I didn't think about that. I just thought the hardest part is leaving and staying gone. Um, and so we don't talk about that. We don't talk about how stalking is a gendered crime, how nine out of 10 stalkers in Canada are men, how most stalking victims are women. A little bit over half of us are stalked by a former partner. Um, that, yeah, like the, those, that it's, intrinsically linked to conversations of intimate partner violence. And in particular, I think stalking when you're being stalked by a, a woman and you're being stalked by a man, even if you're you know, a queer woman who doesn't date men, um, part of the nastiness that is male violence against women is it, stalking can feel like the threat of rape hanging over your head. It really feels like this person is going to either kill you and or sexually assault you. And there's that kind of hypersexualized component that Again, a lot of people don't understand. And it's why I think stalking hasn't gotten the recognition it deserves in Canada because we fund sexual assault centers and women's shelters through two different um, departments and through two different uh, kind of funding streams. And so there's a real silo between shelters and sexual assault centers. And for victims of stalking, our experience feels a little bit like sexual assault, but it also is often related to relationship violence. And so we kind of fall between the cracks because nobody really knows whose job it is to kind of pick up the torch and lead this conversation. And so I think that's why we haven't had the public kind of advocacy and awareness that we've had with different issues because it's 2021 and there's not a single organization in Canada whose sole mandate is to do work on stocking. Like it's astounding how little supports there are for people, especially when you compare it to the US or even in the UK where they have like a national crisis hotline we have nothing in Canada, like literally 
nothing. And so that is why I hear from so many survivors because they hear about my story and they think, okay, she's, she's got to know something. Like she's got to know something. There has to, I must just be missing it. And it's devastating to have to tell survivors multiple times a week, call your local shelter. And that is the only thing I can tell you because there are no services. And that is shameful, frankly. I, I once heard you say something like this, what I don't, I don't mean to misquote you, but something like we won't have, or we probably can't have a Me Too on stalking because the nature of stalking is such that once it's called out, it can intensify the behavior. Um, not to mention that getting the attention is sometimes also what gravitates the stalker. Can you explain that, um, how even the nature of stalking itself makes it difficult for um, like survivors and victims to organize and to advocate like for themselves? Yeah, yeah, that's been my big, um, my kind of big torch that I've been carrying the last couple of years and in being out about my experience is the history of social justice movements, whether it's, you know, abortion access, workplace sexual harassment, intimate partner violence is survivors break the silence, which then creates this domino effect of encouraging other survivors. We realize we're not alone. We start to organize and we start burning down the house, which is amazing. And we saw that with Me Too. But the problem with stalking is by definition, talking about it makes it worse. Um, even if you talk about it in abstract terms, that person knows or you think they know that you're talking about them. Um, and so unless your stalker is dead or in jail, it is literally endangering your life to talk about that experience. And that is the tension that I lived with for so many years because I, I really had a parallel life. I had the you know public part of myself that was an advocate that was touring the country doing you know, speaking truth to power and seen as this really kind of fearless person. And then I had a private life where I was dealing with this sort of terror for so long. And I had privilege. I had a platform. I absolutely could have called him out at any point and people would have listened. But he would have tried to kill me. And best case scenario, he would have tried to sue me and probably won. Um, and people don't understand how litigious <laughs> abusers are. Uh, but how with stalking in particular, right, this person wants confirmation that they are getting to you. They want confirmation that they are, in fact, renting space in your brain. And that's what fuels them. And so to draw attention to them can truly put your life at risk. And I know this personally, but also because in the years that I've been telling my story, I've been approached by really high profile people, like literally like Hollywood A-listers, members of parliament, like people who have incredible amounts of wealth and privilege and access who have privately, you know, DM'd me to say, I wish I could be standing shoulder to shoulder with you, but please know you're speaking for those of us who can't. And it's so frustrating that I have all of this privilege and access and I could die or my children could be harmed if I talk about this. Um, and it feels like a lot of responsibility for me, but I also, it's important for me to tell my story for that reason, because there are so many people who cannot speak without putting their life at risk. And of course you, as you said, you know, people can't really talk about it or do anything about it unless they're, um, they're perp the perpetrator is um, dead or in prison. And, and that was the case with, with your stalker. Um, so if you could uh, tell everyone kind of what what happened and how it ended and and maybe how you felt after after it did 
So I um, was, as I said, living this very, and still am, very public um, experience of, of being an advocate for women's rights. Um, and very few people in my life knew about Xavier. Uh, and one day, about six years ago, he died suddenly in an accident. And it blew my whole world apart because I had gotten confirmation from police, from social workers, from people in my life that this would end, this would never end. I mean, it would only end when I died. Uh, and I had no reason not to believe that. I mean, it went on for almost 11 years at that point. So my coping mechanism had actually been to accept that it was never going to end, which many people did not understand, but was actually like integral to my sanity because other times, you know, when he would go quiet, I would tell myself, okay, 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 it's done, it's done. And then he would reappear and I would fall apart completely because I had gotten my hopes up and I was so angry. And so I actually realized, you know what, if I just accept that he is going to be the shadow forever, then I won't be so distraught every time I hear from him. It'll be more like, yeah, of course, and kind of an eye roll. So, I mean, that coping mechanism kind of went out the window <laughs> um, when he died. And what was really complicated was that I felt very alone uh, because everyone in my life thought, oh my God, it's over. Like, girl, it's over. Like, live your life. Like, go hard. Um, and it didn't feel over to me. I kept waiting. You know, I kept having these like horrific reoccurring nightmares that he had faked his death just to, you know, mess with me. Um, and I, you know, wasn't able to go to his funeral because I didn't want to have to deal with his family. So I didn't get closure in a way. So I just kept waiting for it to feel over. Um, but the biggest piece is, you know, the nature of post-traumatic stress disorder is the post piece. And so the year after he died, I was in the worst shape I've probably ever been. And again, people just didn't understand why I seemed to have been doing better when he was actively stalking me than I was when he died. Um, and thankfully, I found a really great uh, mental health provider who you know, specializes in trauma and PTSD and was so helpful and, and is truly the only reason why I'm still here, who was able to help me process the fact that you know, my coping mechanism for so many years was just denial, like just denial. If I just don't think about it, it's not happening to me. And now I was forced to think about it because it was everyone wanted to talk about it all of the time. And so um, it was me dealing with, you know, 12 years of repressed emotions, which is a lot to handle in a person. And so my body just shut down. Like I just was numb or sobbing. Like I just couldn't get it together. And it was a really difficult time. And in part, because people around me were like, girl, I want to help you, but like, I do not understand what's going on. If I was you, I would just be elated. Um, and I didn't want Xavier to die. You know, I didn't even want him to go to jail. I just wanted him to leave me alone. And I was just so distraught that he had created this situation where now I have to look cruel. Like I'm grateful that this man died, you know, and he had a family that loved him. He was young. He, you know, like it was just such a confusing time to have people say like, but he was a monster. And it's like, okay, but he wasn't always a monster. He was still a person. Um, and, you know, as someone who fights for like prison abolition and restorative justice, like I, I can't, I'm not comfortable just saying I'm hundred percent on team. I'm glad he's dead. You know, like it's such a complicated experience. And again, I, it's a fairly unique experience. And I, I'm grateful to a lot of the survivors who reached out to me, who their experience was 
as a result of incest and that they had been sexually abused by a grandfather or an uncle and he passed away and everyone was like you know you can't speak ill of the dead and you know it was a long time ago and he was an old man and and so a lot of of women and men reached out to me to say I get that and like we don't talk about the complexity of what happens when your abuser dies and how the world has especially in a white North American context this very like you cannot speak ill of the dead it's like the worst thing you could possibly do um, and where that leaves survivors who aren't necessarily glad that that person is dead, but they're glad that the abuse is over. Um, and there's no real room to have conversations about that. Like no shade to your friends and family, but I do think it's a lot to ask someone to be like elated and over it when their abuser dies. Like it's yeah. not really, it's not really not fair to ask somebody to be like, ding dong the witch is dead like in um wizard of oz like i don't really think that, yeah. that seems pretty unfair um that's a lot to ask and i can only imagine that i, I want to talk a little bit about uh like abusive relationships as well because of course that was a, a dynamic um like in addition to the stalking you talk about um being a child of the 80s and growing up on oprah and after school specials and stranger danger and um, I was a child of the 90s, and I think that that was the same for me, too, and how we're, we, I think, as Canadian women are taught to fear, like, the Paul Bernardos and the Carl mm-hmm. Hamokas, rather than the people we love, and, and even people who may genuinely love us. Um, and I guess my question is, like, as an educator who's doing this work, why are we so bad at teaching young people, especially young women, about violence against women and, like, healthy relationships? Well, like the angry feminist response is because we like to keep women in subservient positions and we don't actually want to um, give women the tools to overthrow the patriarchy because I think we're comfortable keeping women under the thumb of men. But I think the kind of more fulsome answer is that, you know, I work with a lot of parents in particular, and I'm not a parent, but I work with a lot of parents and I know I can see in their faces that they wanna do right by their children, but it's too scary to say every single person you know could turn on you. And I think that's the fear that people have is they don't wanna raise, they wanna preserve the innocence of their children. They don't want their children to grow up feeling like they can't trust people. Um, And I get that, you know, I do believe there are absolutely parents who um, don't want their children to have that information because they, there is abuse in their home and they don't want their children to know that. But I do think the vast majority of the time, stranger danger feels more, um, not realistic, but it feels like manageable to say, just don't talk to creepers on the street and you'll be fine. But to get into the nuance of, you know, statistically it's your uncle, it's your grandfather, it's your boyfriend, it's your roommate's boyfriend, like that, it feels so real for people that it's scary and it's overwhelming and they just don't know how to approach it without building this kind of bubble boy situation where your kids never interact with other adults in any way shape or form and so it's important to name that fear I think because again I think a lot of parents are trying to do right by their kids like I know my parents were trying to do right by me um, but it's important for us to talk about consent it's important for us to talk about bodily autonomy that even if someone is a member of your family, that they don't have the right to touch you without your permission. Things like, you know, the difference between a secret um, and a surprise, like children to say, okay, don't tell mom until Saturday when it's her birthday and we're going to pull out this cake 
is perfectly fine, but don't tell mom ever is never okay, right? Children shouldn't have secrets. Um, and I think in talking to younger, like young women, uh, you know, like I do lots of work in junior high and high school, and I talk a lot about not centering your romantic relationships, period. Um, and if someone insists that they have to be your whole world, that that's actually really suffocating that it's not healthy, that you should be with someone who has their own life, um, that has their own interests, that respects you and your interests. Things like if you're dating someone and they hate all of your friends and they hate your family, uh, that's, a, that's a flag, right? That that person's trying to isolate you. Like things like that that are actually quite helpful and a little less scary than I think where, other, where parents go sometimes and they just tune it out because it's just like, I don't want to know that one in three women in this country will be sexually assaulted because then I, I'm never gonna let my kid leave the house, you know? Absolutely. And so much of your research, uh, focused on elderly women, which I thought was really interesting. And so I'm curious if you can talk to us a little bit about the misconceptions about, um, who the victims of stalking and, and, and sexual violence are. Yeah, so I'm very lucky that I grew up in a blue collar family in a small community in Northern Ontario where we had four generations living under one roof. So, um, you know, young families are a common experience in working class communities. So, I mean, I grew up with my grandmother and my great grandfather. My great grandfather passed away late 90s. He was in his late 90s. I was in my 20s. Like, I was so grateful to have these people in my life growing up. Um, but because of that, when I went to university, I was really pissed off that I did an entire four-year degree in women's studies and we never talked about elderly women. And so I decided to go to grad school to study the experiences of elderly women living in poverty. And I very quickly realized that the feminist movement in this country anyway is incredibly ageist. Uh, we talk about poverty and we assume we're talking about young moms. We talk about violence, we assume we're talking about young women. Um, sexual assault, young women. And we know that, for example, if you are sexually assaulted as a child or as a teen, you are more at risk of being in an abusive relationship in your adulthood. You are also more at risk of experiencing elder abuse as an elder. So we know that the cumulative effect of experiencing violence means that you um, are more at risk of experiencing it again and again and again. And so if we don't intervene as a society to support, you know, single moms, living in poverty, they end up being middle-aged women living in poverty and elderly women living in poverty. But similarly, I mean, there's women, when I worked at the Sexual Assault Center, there were women in their 70s who were coming forward to talk about their experiences of sexual abuse that they suffered as a child or maybe in the context of a relationship. And now their partner is dead, they're alone, they're dealing with these memories that are coming back to them. And again, like we don't do outreach. And I say we as like sort of the women's movement, those of us who do this work, like we don't think about older women when we do outreach and when we talk about our workshops and our services, you know, do your posters just have pictures of young women? They might be diverse young women, but they're still only young women. It's so heartbreaking to me that I did, like I finished my thesis and I think it was like 2013 or 2012 and I couldn't get any funding for my research. No one was interested at all in talking about ageism in Canada. And then look at the pandemic. I mean, Canada leads the world in deaths by older women of COVID. Like we are the worst country in the world for letting older women die of COVID. And we're all having this conversation about, oh my God, elder care. Uh, and I think it's just such an, a clear example of these patterns that feminists have seen for so long, which is we ignore this problem until it becomes unavoidable. And then we think, oh my gosh, how did we get here? And it's like, we've been trying to raise awareness 
for decades and you didn't care. Um, and so I am really, I, I love working with young women so much, especially like junior, like grades six, seven, eight. It's like such a great age. They're mature enough to understand complex stuff, but they're still keen enough to like pay attention. But I'm really, really passionate about continuing the conversation through the lifespan um, because there's no reason why we should be in this position where we have, you know, soon everyone in Canada will be under 25 or over 65. Like, what is that going to do to us culturally? We haven't made those, we haven't adapted. Um, and as someone who cares deeply about violence against women work, um, I care deeply about the fact that, you know, older women were the highest demographic of women killed last year in Canada. Like the, you know, most of the femicide victims last year in Canada were between the ages of 55 and 64. Like, where's the conversation happening around that? You know, women being killed by spouses they've been with for 30, 40 years. Like, you know, it's not just young women like myself who experienced that violence. It's years and years and years. And like, what does that do to you as a person? And we just don't, we just, yeah, we just don't talk about it. I want to ask you about the title because of course, like resilience and, and how the concept of resilience is, is pretty fraught is, is a big theme in the book. Um, can you tell us how you landed at, this title resilience is futile yeah it's so fun it's similar I just feel like I had this like weird like Nostradamus capacity to be like we need to talk about elderly women and people are like no and then 10 years later they're like oh we should have listened and like that's how I feel um because my my grad st- in grad school yes I was talking about elderly women living in poverty but I was actually doing commentary on the complexity of resilience and I launched my book on the day that the pandemic was declared um and it that's the, bad luck oh truly the worst luck I mean when I say I have the worst luck I can't stress that enough literally Lucy Van Holden Barnefeld left CBC studios where she declared across Canada we are in a pandemic walked up the street to library and archives and was like welcome to Julie's book launch like it was such a gong show but it was so interesting in doing press leading up to the book launch how people were so uncomfortable with the title of my book, how there were people in my sector who, for example, found it offensive. Um, it was just so interesting how people were like, no, but you're telling women to just give up by saying resilience is futile. You're saying, get up, like give up. There's no point in trying. Um, and then the pandemic happened and the speech from the throne was called, you know, building a resilient Canada and you know the budget that was just announced was about a resilient Canada and it's been so interesting to see people really thinking about how oh maybe this resilience piece is more complicated than we want to believe and for me the reason I mean there's so many reasons why one I grew up in a family of Trekkies so um, it's a Star Trek reference that my family supports Um, two for me it really is like, like resilience is futile. If what you're trying to do is save women's lives, if what you're trying to do is improve the quality of women's lives, then telling women to just be tougher um, and to just endure is the wrong approach. It's a very individualistic concept that says, you know, Julie pulled herself up by her bootstraps. So what's your excuse, Joe Blow? Um, and our capacity to be resilient is intrinsically linked to privilege and to networks and to systems of support. Um, and for me... I survived that experience, not because I'm more resilient than the women who were killed or took their own lives. And I think it's so important that we problematize resilience because what it does is it creates 
this idea that people can shoulder anything. And if not, then it's a weakness on their part. And like, we're human beings, we have limits. Uh, and in my case in particular, what was so fascinating is mere months before um, Xavier passed, I was doing lots of media, taking on the Canadian Armed Forces. And it was literally me and the chief of the defense staff and you know Peter Mansbridge name dropping me on the national and pushing them to answer to what they had done to me when I presented at the Royal Military College. And so people thought like this woman is badass as shit. She's not afraid of anybody. Like there's not like people were really just like, damn. And then when I came forward to say, hey, I've been stalked for 10 years and I'm like really struggling with this and it was terrifying. People couldn't reconcile the two versions of myself and they actively, unknowingly, I think, were actively using my resilience against me to argue that, okay, it might've been bad, but like you got so much stuff done and you're so badass that like, does it really matter that that happened to you? Because look at how much, how well you're doing. And, or like, there's no way it was that bad because people who are traumatized don't take on systems and people who are traumatized are afraid of their own shadows. They wouldn't leave their house and do X, Y, and Z. And I've seen that countless times in my career with sexual assault survivors where they take the stand and they have to walk this fine balance of looking awful enough that their pain is taken seriously, but not be such a mess that they are discredited as being, you know, hot mess who can't be seen as a credible person. And it's that balance that I saw in the elderly women that I interviewed who really prioritized stoicism and looking, putting on a brave front, but then realized that in doing that, their pain was not actually being recognized because people thought, oh, they're fine. And if they weren't fine, they would say something. So, but then they were like, every time I complain, my grandkids stop coming around because they say I'm a downer. So I don't know what to do to get people to care about my situation. And that's the pickle that we put women in particular in. Um, and so I think this focus all the time on resilience is individualizing a systemic problem. And I think instead of trying to raise more resilient young women, we need to build a kinder world that doesn't force us to fight so hard to exist in the world, let alone to try and thrive in the world. And so that's why it was important for me to just, yeah, just like put it, be blunt and say like resilience is missing the damn point. I think that's a fantastic, um, I think that's a fantastic point. So for those um, listeners who maybe, you know, feel like that they can relate to your story in some way, um, or for those listeners who want to get involved in the cause, I know it's kind of two separate questions, but, um, you know, how, what resources are available and, and what, what can people do to get involved? Well, um, a few years ago, I created a project called Outside of the Shadows. So I was you know, shortly after Xavier died, I was in my feelings. And one of my feelings was just deep rage that I had been part of the feminist movement for so long and nobody had talked about stalking. And trust me, I had been paying close attention and I had gone to every conference and every, you know, panel and read every article. And so um, I decided to ask lovely allies to donate money that I would use to hire an artist to create a PSA so that victims of stalking in Canada had something when they googled um, and so I created Outside of the Shadows with the incredible artist Ambivalently Yours who's an incredible visual artist. She hand painted over a hundred watercolor images and then sewed them together in this really really beautiful quite gentle five-minute PSA that folks can access for free online in English and en français. 
Um, and so if you yourself are experiencing stalking, I'd recommend checking that out. It's free. It's up on YouTube, but it has really practical information around safety planning. Uh, and it also has information for allies. So things to do if someone you know is being stalked or you're concerned that someone you know is at risk of being stalked, uh, some really helpful information there. So I would recommend folks check that out if they're interested in that. And if you already do this work in some capacity, whether it's, you know, you work in the legal field or mental health or um, education, and you're interested in, in getting involved, I am currently trying to build a national organization on stalking whose sole mandate would be to do this work, to do the education pieces, the advocacy, um, building a list of lawyers who would want to provide um, free legal advice so folks get some some legal advice. Um, so I'm trying to slowly build that network now. So I'm you know, constantly putting the call out if folks are doing this work or have an interest in this work and want to stay involved or want to help um, to reach out to me, uh, you know, social media or through my website. Uh, love to, to collaborate with as many people as possible. Um, and yeah, for survivors, I would say if, if it's intimate partner violence or it's someone that you used to date or even date in a very loose sense like you know you know you want a one tinder date with this person and they won't leave you alone i really recommend folks call their local shelter because few people know that shelters provide crisis lines and crisis support and a lot of times people don't call them because they think it's just for housing but it's also for safety planning for um you know what are your rights what should you do if you're planning to leave how you can report so yeah, really encourage folks to do that. Julie, where can people find you? So um, the easiest way is through my website. So it's yellow manteau, which is coat in French. Um, because I'm also active on social media, but I have a thousand filters because I get so much backlash for the work that I do. So the kind of easiest way is um, to come through my website and to uh, send me an email. And if, yeah, folks want to share their story or just connect with someone who has a similar experience or wants to find out more, I, um, yeah, love hearing from allies. Thank you so much for being here, Julie, and being so generous with your time and your story. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so appreciative. If you want to keep up with us in between episodes, you can follow us at Just Watch Me Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Send us your thoughts and feelings about the show at justwatchmepodcast at gmail.com. And it really helps us if you can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Thanks. See you next week. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.